Thanks, Brandy. Uh, it'd be wonderful if you had your Bibles there with you, open, uh, ready to have a look at together. Uh, it's page 1147. Uh, if you'd flicked it shut, 1147, we'll be looking at chapter 6 and continuing on uh, on our way through 1 Corinthians. Uh, you might also have grabbed, hopefully, as you came in uh, for the service, the uh, service sheet that has an outline of where we'll be going uh, for today's talk. Uh, and there are cross-references there, passages that I'll be referring to if you wanted to look at those uh, later on. Uh, and my number's down the bottom of the page, and so if you do have any questions that you uh, would like to ask, please feel free to text those through, uh, and um, perhaps we'll have a chance later this morning uh, to address those, uh, but if not, I'd be more than happy to touch base with you later. Well, in uh, 1829, 1829, Joseph Hamilton published the definitive guide to duelling with pistols, that is, facing off against one another, turning around and taking a shot. Uh, the title of the book, at least the main part of the title, the titles in those days of books were tended to be rather long uh, and extended, but the, the main part of the title was this, The Only Approved Guide Through All the Stages of a Quarrel. I uh, find it quite amusing, uh, I guess at this distant of time, to see that he would just assume that naturally quarrels potentially would end in duelling as if it was the most natural thing in the world. Uh, historically, duelling was typically restricted to just the nobility and the more stately classes in a society. Essentially, it was assumed that ordinary folk didn't have enough social status of their own to warrant defending their honour in such a drastic way as duelling. As a gentleman, to even just have your sense of honour publicly questioned was enough to undermine your status and your standing in the eyes of society. Uh, you might be familiar with the musical Hamilton that depicts the dramatised retelling uh, of several duels, but particularly a duel between uh, a man who was the American Vice President, uh, Aaron Burr, and the founding father, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, the duel apparently took place after Hamilton had slandered Burr at a dinner party and had been reported by a journalist in a newspaper. Less celebrated than that historic duel, but just as idiotic, really, was Australia's own last recorded duel. Uh, it was between New South Wales' first Premier, in fact, Donaldson, and Mitchell, who was the head of the New South Wales Treasury at the time. Donaldson had publicly criticised Mitchell about his department's over-expenditure, and so, of course, they faced off to a duel, to duel it out in Centennial Park. Uh, the only casualty on, the, on that particular occasion ended up being Donaldson's hat. Such prideful bravado and obsession with one's honour. It now appears to us complete lunacy, doesn't it? Even so, just 15 minutes, perhaps, spent on Twitter or on Facebook might suggest that we've hardly grown much more sophisticated in the way in which we manage our disputes with one another, even within the church, Christian community. Now, in today's passage, the Apostle Paul likewise takes the Corinthian church to task for the infantile manner 
in which they were defending their own honour and dishonouring Christ's name in the process. Uh, The scandal is detailed for us in those opening verses of chapter 6 that Brandy read for us. Have a a glance again with me uh, at chapter 6, verse 1. There Paul writes, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Notice here that Paul isn't scandalised by the fact that there are disputes in the church as such. There's no virtue in naively denying that believers will experience some friction in their shared life with one another. We are frail creatures. We have fragile egos and an imperfect understanding of ourselves, let alone a very comprehensive understanding of one another. Friction, disagreement and misunderstanding are in and of themselves nothing to be scandalised about when that happens within church communities. Rather, to Paul's mind... The scandal lay in how the Corinthians were responding to such relational frictions. It was the means by which they sought resolution for their disputes that had so scandalised the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter. Uh, Local Roman uh, civil cases were perhaps a little bit different to what we might imagine by going to court. The aim of litigating in a local Roman court was not so much just to mediate a just resolution to some disagreement as it was to defeat your opponent in public. Local Roman civil cases could easily devolve into public spectacle as crowds came to witness over-the-top lawyers tearing into each other in an attempt to uphold the status and the standing of their own clients. Lawyers were free to attack the character of the opposing party as part of the proceedings of the case. And these attacks could be extremely personal in nature and even entirely untrue. Such attacks could range from, you know, the pretty petty, like jokes about someone's thinning hair, hair loss, right through to accusations of incest or worse. Now, it's worth noting that on other occasions, Paul will insist that we should honour governing authorities, as those who God has appointed to punish criminal wrongdoing. But here, the Corinthians are instead combatively using the local legal system to one-up each other, to publicly slander one another. And what's worse, they're asking those who care nothing about God's honour to arbitrate these public slanging matches between them. Don't you know, asks an exasperated Paul, the church will one day share in Jesus' judgment over both the earthly and the heavenly realms. Perhaps that unsettles you, some of you, the thought that you will play a part in the judgment of both the earthly and the heavenly realms. Paul's point here is certainly not that in the final judgment, Jesus will simply delegate his dirty work to us, in the way that a crime boss might force a lackey to prove their loyalty 
by getting blood on their hands. Revelation chapter 3 says Jesus promises that believers will sit on Jesus' throne with Him. Revelation 20 describes how all believers will, how in, in some sense, share in Jesus' own judgment of the nations. But it's not something we're doing off our own bat, as if Jesus has just dumped it in our lap to sort out. It's just an expression of our sharing in Jesus' status as the one who will judge the world. And the Corinthians knew of this. In fact, back in chapter 4, we read how the Corinthians had been so arrogantly boasting about their own exalted status as those who were united with Jesus. Uh, With a a tone thick in sarcasm, have a look at these words that Paul writes back in chapter 4. Paul is writing here with thick, dripping sarcasm. Paul says to the Corinthians, you have begun to reign and that without us, apostles. We, we apostles, have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to humans. We are fools for Christ, but you, you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are on it, but we are dishonored. Paul has in the back of his mind that arrogance, that self-confidence that the Corinthians had been boasting about just moments before. And so now Paul says, come on, if you Corinthians are so quick to boast in your exalted spiritual status and honour, surely you could deal with a few petty squabbles amongst yourselves rather than having to go and publicly air your dirty laundry before unbelievers. Where is all your boasting now? Deal with your own mess within your own community, Paul says. It's clear that Paul is attempting to shame the Corinthians for their boastful hypocrisy at one point and their resistance to actually taking responsibility for their shared life together the very next. Uh, And this becomes clear in the next couple of verses. Have a look with me at verse 4. Chapter 6 again, verse 4. Given that the Corinthians will share in Jesus' status and honour as the judge of all things, Paul writes, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, the things of this life, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court? And this in front of believers. It's likely that a whole string of objections might quickly spring to mind for us at Paul's suggestion here that believers should arbitrate their own messy disputes, their own internal disagreements. After all, can't insisting that disputes be dealt with all in-house especially leave us vulnerable to leading to abuse and cover-ups? Might there not be situations in which the legal complexities of some disputes simply outstrip the technical knowledge of church members to be able to judge and assess things accurately, correctly, even legally? Is it not possible that a church leader might be complicit in some wrongdoing or at the very least have been groomed to support a wrongdoer? in some dispute 
or disagreement or wrong that is occurring within a church community? Are we really to never involve anyone from outside the church community when things go sideways amongst us as a church family? It is worth noting that the Apostle Paul himself appealed to the Emperor Caesar in the book of Acts when he himself had been wronged by his own countrymen. The Apostle Paul is explicit in passages like Romans 13, that governments have been given the sword to punish criminal wrongdoing and to protect those who do right. There have been occasions in which churches have used passages like the one we're looking at today to say it's a sin to involve outside parties like governments and the police in internal, internal church life matters and in so doing have covered up wrongdoing amongst them. At this point, let me express myself as clearly as I possibly can. Were someone to come to the ministry staff at this church with concerns perhaps of domestic abuse or other such criminal behaviour, the matter will not simply be kept in-house here at Summerhill Church. We will support you in seeking the protection and the care that you need from those authorities that the government itself has instituted and put in place to care for those who are most vulnerable and at risk. Does that mean then that we're contravening Paul's very instructions here in this passage, in verse 6, that instructs us not to take these matters, whatever the Corinthians were arguing out, before the local courts, in verse 6? I don't think so. Paul is not speaking here about churches conducting themselves as sovereign communities free from the law of the land. That's not Paul's intention. And this becomes especially clear in verses 7 to 8, where we get this further insight into the precise nature of these disputes that Paul is so scandalised going on between the Corinthian communities. Uh, have a look with me at verse 7 and following. Notice the character of these disputes that Paul has in mind. Verse 7, Paul says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. First of all, notice what Paul isn't saying in these verses. Paul is not saying, why not be wronged rather than report wrongdoing? Paul is not saying, why not rather be cheated rather than make an emotional fuss about something that has upset you or something wrong that is happening or occurring in church life? Paul is not saying here, just let sleeping dogs lie. Don't be troublemaker. Let's just kind of keep it all calm and, and hide things, sweep things under the carpet. Instead, Paul is insisting, why not rather be wronged than wrong your brother? Why not rather be cheated than in turn to go and cheat your sister? 
Can you see here what Paul considers so scandalous about the Corinthians' behaviour? They are using these legal systems, these legal leveraging, they are using their access to public standing and influence to wrong and to cheat those who are their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are responding to those who have wronged them, using the legal system to wrong and cheat in return, in retaliation. Uh, This kind of abuse of the legal system was common in the ancient world. In fact, it's addressed explicitly by Jesus' brother, James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, It's going to pop up on the screen a little section from James's own letter, James chapter 2. There James writes, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom God has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? It's that kind of scandalous behaviour. Using the courts as an excuse to wrong one another that Paul has in mind when he expresses the scandal of how the Corinthians are behaving and treating one another. It's that kind of scandalous, abusing the legal system to wrong and to get back at others that Paul has in mind as he finishes off today's passage. Have a look with me at the closing verses of uh, today's passage in chapter 6. We'll look at verses 9 to 11. Uh, We'll come back and look at these last verses again next week as well. Paul writes, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, Next week, we'll revisit these verses as Paul explores how we're also at risk, as a church community, of wronging one another in how we embody and think about our own sexuality. But that's for next week. But here, as we finish off today's passage, it was no doubt those who were the slanderers and the swindlers who were manipulating the pagan court system in order to exalt themselves and to tear down those brothers and sisters who would fail to satisfactorily honour them, give them the honour and due that they thought they deserved. Now, while our own legal system is very far from being perfect, it thankfully consists of many safeguards that prevent it from becoming a vehicle for slander and public feuds in the way in which it often devolved into in the ancient world. And I've thankfully never had to witness disputes being settled and honour being defended with pistols at 20 feet. But perhaps online, we've discovered new avenues through which to promote our own honour while assassinating the character of others. 
even as believers, perhaps we're still tempted to take our disputes before the court of public opinion on social media, perhaps. Tabling our evidence against fellow believers on the digital feeds and threads of social media platforms. Inviting even unbelievers to vindicate our particular brand of rightness with a like or a share or a retweet. Perhaps we need Paul's warning from this passage now more than ever before. We no longer need to be wealthy, witty or clever in order to take other believers to trial. In the ancient world, it was almost certain that it was only the rich who could afford or had the networks to be able to take others into the litigation of the local courts. There were those who didn't have any legal right to initiate legal proceedings at all, like slaves, foreigners. But now we all have access to doing it on the most public stage you could imagine. If we're not inclined to even invest time in patiently resolving our disputes with one another, we might instead simply outsource our slander and our shaming by tagging people with whichever YouTube rant most resonates with our own frustrations and anger with them. And all this before unbelievers. All this from people who were sanctified in Jesus' name, from people who were set apart in Jesus' name to operate differently to the world around about them. Friends, if the Lord Jesus himself has justified us, if the Lord Jesus himself has vindicated us, that's what justified means, is to to declare us in the right, as verse 11 assures us at the end of today's passage, then what possible cause could we possibly have to resort to the tactics of the ungodly to affirm and defend our own honour out of pride or self-serving interests? Paul calls us not to wrong our brothers and sisters in that kind of way, whether they're brothers and sisters who are with us meeting in this building today or whether they're brothers and sisters perhaps who are meeting elsewhere in our city the world, perhaps even in other times. Let us pray and ask that God would give us the wisdom to care for and honour one another for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus, who binds us all together with one another. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we do thank you that in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, you have sanctified us, that is, you've set us apart to serve your honour and glory. Father, we thank you that in the name of the Lord Jesus, you have justified us, you have declared us to be right in standing and status before you. Father, with that confidence, we ask that you would help us to lay aside all frail and futile and petty attempts to justify ourselves against fellow believers in the eyes of the world. Enable us to entrust ourselves to your judgment and in that confidence to give ourselves to loving each other in patience and care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
friends, uh, if you did want to send through any questions uh, or comments on what we've been looking at together this morning, please feel free to do that. Phone number's at the bottom of the sheet. Uh, the music team are now going to lead us uh, in song uh, before we return in a moment to spend some time in prayer.